First Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to look at verses 13 through 21, and this is God's word for us this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of, of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, con- conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together. Father God, I would really, we would really love, Lord, for you to speak to us with depth and clarity in your word. Let us have moments of gospel sweetness and focus. Change our hearts, change our lives, change our focus, change our attitudes for us to magnify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Most of the things that we've seen for the first 12 verses of First Peter... Um, it feels weird to me, by the way, that we've only covered 12 verses of 1 Peter because it feels like we've been here for a while. But most of the verses have been descriptive statements about life and salvation, and especially about living in a world that causes you to suffer. But once the gospel here has been magnified and God glorified, Peter is going to turn to giving us some instructions for how we live in the, in the real world. Because it's a hard place to live And we need a right focus, and we need a right goal, and we need a right attitude if we're going to be able to honor God living through a tough world. So if you're a note taker, I want you to be ready for three main points here this morning. And we're going to learn to live to the glory of God with hope, holiness, and fear. Those are the things we're going to try to cover here this morning. So let's just jump right in and see the first point So if you write these down, point number one, set your hope on the return of Christ. Set your hope on the return of Christ. Verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, After all we've seen about salvation, about God's sovereignty, about our hope in Christ, we finally get here from Peter a command. He has shown us the gospel in rich colors, and now he calls us by the Spirit of God to respond to the gospel. Now, how do I know that Peter is telling us in verse 13 here, or 12 here, 13, that he's telling us to respond to the gospel, what he's already said. Well, the first word is what? Therefore, 
right? As I'm sure you've heard many times before, but you can never hear it too many. Wherever you see the word therefore in the scriptures, always look to see what it's there for. That should help you. Therefore is a word that tells us because of what I just said, there's a thought you should have or an action you should take. So what are we supposed to do because of the last month's worth of sermons? Peter tells us a few things we're supposed to do. But the primary command in verse 13 is that we are to set our minds fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So because of the glories of the gospel, because of the grandeur of what it means to be chosen by God, because of the comfort we have in being kept by God, and all the things that we've seen over the past month or so, you and I are supposed to change the way that we think. And the context of this entire book, by the way, tells us that the change in mindset is going to help you to live as an exile here in a world that's not your home. Now, there's two phrases here that modify how you are to set your mind on the hope you have in Christ. First, it says preparing your mind for action. And, and literally, the Greek behind that little participle there, that participial phrase, is gird, girding up the loins of your mind. Wouldn't that mean a lot? That'd be a great t-shirt, right? Girding up the loins of your mind. There's our new, there's our new slogan statement for the church, guys. Providence Reformed Church, girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, that is... If you could picture an old Roman soldier, you guys have all seen enough Easter plays to know what Roman soldiers dress like, right? Long robes. Well, if he was going to fight, he had to tuck the robe up into his belt so that it didn't tangle around his legs. And they call that girding up your loins. And the idea is get your mind ready for the instruction to come. In modern English, we don't don't tell someone to gird up their loins and get ready to get down to work. We might say, let's roll up our sleeves and get down to business, right? So think of this first part as roll up the sleeves of your mind and get ready to get to work. And then the second phrase is being sober-minded. Now, sobriety makes us think of being serious. It's the opposite of being drunk or foolish. A person who is sober-minded is a person who has the ability to think seriously, to take things seriously, to not be impaired by something that clouds your judgment. You know, some people refuse to be serious at any point. Some are only silly all the time. That's not sober-minded. Now, sober-minded can be happy. Sober-minded people can laugh. But sober-minded people are ready and able to think seriously when the time comes. And Peter says to you and to me, get your minds ready. Get mentally set to focus on something. Get ready to work hard. Take the silliness out of your brain for what is about to come. Which means, dear friends, that the command to follow is a big deal. You do not get a pass not to think about what is to come. You have to be ready to get to work here. Now, what's the command? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope, we know, is our certainty of the future. 
Hope is what we cling to as we look forward to seeing the promises of God fulfilled. And right here in the middle of a hard life, in a tough, disturbing world, we are to set our hope on one particular thing. And I would suggest to you, by the way, Christians, that there are many who do not set their focus here like they should. Our hope is the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ returns. The biblical command here is that you and I, with awake, hardworking minds, battle to keep our hope and our joy and our reason for going on fully focused on the final grace that is going to be ours when Jesus comes back to earth. Now, this requires a little bit of doctrine. The word eschatology, how many of you cringe when you hear that word, by the way? Stop it. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Eschatology means, that's just a seminary word that means the study of the things of the end. And eschaton is the end of the end times. And eology is the study of it. So it's the study of the end things or end times. Christian eschatology includes everything we believe about the future as God wraps up all of human history. Because God has made promises, hasn't he? And we believe that the promises of God are going to come to pass. In fact, we find our our hope in the grace that we get to hold on to when this all takes place. And we're commanded to set our minds and our focus right there. Now, again, eschatology is a lot of things, right? It talks about how Jesus comes back. And it talks about... Uh, the judgment. It talks about heaven forever and hell forever and the new heavens and the new. All that stuff is part of eschatology. And we are to think about the promises that have been made. Let me give you one. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 say this. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, that's the disciples, Jesus, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Would that not have been the coolest thing to see, by the way? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What do we know for sure from those words from the angel? Jesus is promised to return. By the way, has this happened yet? Do you know anybody who's seen Jesus come down like that, the same way he went up from the mountain? No, you don't. That has not occurred yet. The return of Jesus, just in the same way that he left, has to be physical has to be visible, has to be literal. There's no tricks here, no surprises. The very same Jesus who left the earth 40 days after his resurrection is going to come back to earth in the exact same way that he left. That's what the angels promised. 
He is going to be in bodily form. People are going to really see him with their physical eyes. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to do some really neat stuff. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When Jesus returns, he, along with the angels of God, will gather to himself all the people of God. Has that happened yet? We would know, trust me. Those physically dead, those who died as Christians, at this moment are physically going to rise from the dead, receive from the Lord brand new bodies, resurrection bodies, the the, the bodies that will last forever, and they'll never sin again, and they'll never wear out, and they'll never die again. And then the believers who are alive when Jesus returns are going to be caught up from the surface of the earth and given new resurrection bodies. And we're going to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And from that time forward, everyone who has ever known Jesus will receive from Jesus all the glorious rewards of heaven that God has promised. We get life. We get hope. We get peace. We get joy. We get fulfillment. We get comfort. We get satisfaction. And more and more and more, more than you could ever ask for or imagine. And as we look forward to that great reward, that great day of consummation, when all the hope we have in Christ becomes actual reality, as we look forward that way, we find that thinking in that direction, that fully focusing your heart and your life and your mind in that direction gives you the hope that you need to live in a hard life in the here and now. Paul knew this. That's why Paul told the believers, encourage one another with the promise of the return of Jesus. That's why Paul told the Colossians to set their minds on Christ and his return. Very much the same way Peter said it here in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, meaning spiritually alive. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christian, do not let the fact that people love to fight about eschatology... Keep you from loving to think about and study about and hope in the return of Jesus. You don't have to know for sure whether the millennial reign of Jesus is literal or figurative, heavenly or earthly. I could tell you, but then, you know, that wouldn't be any fun for any of us, would it? (laughs) Now, am I saying that the millennium is unimportant? No. I think it's an important doctrine. I think it matters a great deal. But I'm telling you this, we don't have to fight about that doctrine. You don't have to fight about that one with others. 
But the place where we find a problem, dear friends, is when we let ourselves to ignore thinking about the return of Jesus and the glories to come. We cannot let that go. And friends, I know some of you have been scarred, just rubbed raw with this issue in the past. The only thing I know to say to you is, I love you, get over it. Because you've got to do this. Peter, God through Peter, tells you and tells me, if we want to sustain ourselves in a hard world, in a world that might come at us, in a world that might want to take our lives, we have to set our minds fully on the glorious grace and reward that God has guaranteed will be ours when Jesus returns. So set your hope on the return of Christ. Now ask yourself, how do I do this? Are you obeying this command from God? How do you think, think to yourself right now, do you obey that command from God? When's the last time you asked the Lord to focus your mind on the hope and the grace of the return of Jesus? When did you last pray? Even so, come Lord Jesus, come back soon. When did you last study the things that the Bible promises will be as the Lord Jesus puts right all that ever has gone wrong with the world? Maybe you've run and you've hid from Bible books like Revelation. By the way, there's no S at the end of Revelation. I don't care where you're from. (laughs) Do you guys hide from the book of Revelation? Be honest. Some of you do. The reason I know is because you've told me. (laughs) and I understand why you would I do but don't even if the symbolism and the arguments have distracted you in the past stop and remember a couple of great truths okay here's some things you need to know about revelation okay the book of revelation calls itself in the first verse the revelation of what the revelation of Jesus Christ You know what it doesn't call itself? The revelation of the future and future timeline. It calls itself the revelation of Jesus. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then you better study Revelation. The revelation shows you Jesus. It shows you that no matter how much the world and the devil try to destroy the church of God, the Savior is victorious. It shows us that Jesus comforts those who die for his name. It shows us that Jesus is always and eternally victorious. It shows us that the world and its God-hating system is going to be overthrown forever. It gives us hope that we can hold on to when the world looks like it can't be beaten. That's what Revelation has. Don't neglect it. And if our focus is on Jesus, what are we also going to do? There's more than that. We have to live in the here and now, don't we? So set your hope on things above. Set your hope on the return of Christ. And then point number two, battle worldly passions with holiness. Battle worldly passions with holiness. Verse 14 through 16. says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So even as you and I see ourselves as exiles, scattered refugees in a world that does not want us, 
We've got one more way here to view ourselves. God wants us to be his obedient children. God is a good father. Even if you had a bad father, God is a good father. God loves and cares for and keeps his children. And as good children to a good father, you and I want to obey our heavenly father's instruction. So what does God call us to? First, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before salvation, people tend to be driven by their desires. You ever notice that being true? Our drives, our passions, our wants rule us when we're not ruled by God. And this is probably hinting here at people who, before their salvation, participated in immoral sexual behavior. But but it also could be anything that burns In the human heart. Because some people have passions for what? For success? For recognition? You ever meet somebody who has a passion to be recognized? Some people have a passion for power or a passion for money. Some people have a burning passion to look like they are the greatest helpers and humanitarians in the world. Listen. But any passion, even a good passion, that is not a passion undergirded by a heart for the glory of God, will always end up as a sinful passion. I need to say that again. Any passion, even a good passion, that is not a passion undergirded by a heart for the glory of God, will always end up as a sinful passion. Our best deeds on our best days as lost people were never going to impress God. Because before we knew Jesus, we didn't understand that all we did was for something other than for Jesus' glory. When you didn't know Jesus, you never did a deed to the glory of Jesus because you wanted Jesus magnified. But glorifying Jesus is the purpose for your life. That's the reason God made you. So anything that you do that is less than glorifying Jesus, what do we call it when we do things that are less than the ultimate purpose of God for us? Sin. Anything you do that is not for the glory of Jesus is sin. Do you realize that you could build a hospital and feed orphans and it be sin? If the reason you exist is to the glory of Jesus and you do it for a reason other than to glorify Jesus, you sin even in your best deeds. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted, filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, talking about the church before our salvation, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christians, understand this. Before Jesus saved us, we were rotten. You willing to own that? We had nothing good to bring to God. And we filled ourselves with what Peter called the passions of our former ignorance. But once we have Jesus, we're not supposed to be driven by the drives that drove us before. In Christ, we've got a new standard for living. The world around us may not understand our standard. They may wonder why, why we can't go with them and do the things that they think are okay. But God wants you and me to know that we have been changed, that we belong to Him, and that we are no longer free to do what the rest of the world thinks they're free to do. So what then do we do? Do we just sit around saying, well, I have to just concentrate on what not to do? That sounds like a fun life, doesn't it? (laughs) Verses 15 and 16 give you the balancing thought. Don't do this, do that. Don't give in to your former passions, but instead be holy as God is holy. Because God is holy, being holy is your goal too. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I, I keep wanting to quote every time I read this Peter passage, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word holy is a very weighty word in Scripture. Holy points to God's perfection. Holy points to God's uniqueness. If something is holy, it is set apart for a sacred purpose. God being holy says he is set apart. God is, R.C. Sproul liked to say, a cut above everything else. God is different from creation. God is higher than creation. God is unique and not completely like any part of creation. Why? Well, part of what makes God different from creation is the fact that God is the creator. He can't be creation because he made creation. That makes him different than creation by definition, right? And another thing that makes God different than creation is the fact that God is totally perfect, totally above and beyond the fallen world. God is totally independent from the world. He doesn't rely on the world for anything. God is totally self-sufficient. All of that gets wrapped up in the bundle that we call God being holy. When God calls you and me to be holy, though, He's not saying you have to put on attributes of God that you can't share. God is not saying you become the creator. That would be a hard command to obey, wouldn't it? We cannot become 
the eternal God. But the call to holiness for us is a call to purity and the perfection of God that will set us up as different from a world around us that doesn't value the things of God. You and I are called to lives that look different than the rest of the world, that look like people who belong to the Holy One. Now, Peter, when he writes, Be holy as as the Lord is holy, he's probably quoting Leviticus, but it's hard to know exactly which verse because this verse flies all through Leviticus. You could say 19 verse 2, as as good a guess as any. But repeatedly, the book of Leviticus says to the people of God, be holy because God is holy. Because your God is holy, you be holy. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is God's standard for your life and mine? It is perfection. God measures your actions and my actions not against the actions of other people around us, but he measures your actions and my actions against God's absolute purity. And Christians are to battle worldly passions. How? We're supposed to battle them with holiness. Peter says, be different from what you used to be. Peter says, don't be driven by the things that used to drive your life before Christ. Instead, Peter says, focus on shaping your life to make it look like you belong to the one who is perfect. So if you think about your life, ask questions about the choices you're thinking about making. Ask, when you think about doing something, ask yourself, does this look like I looked before I was saved? Or ask, does this make me look like the world or like somebody who belongs to God? Or ask, will the decision that I want to make show people around me that I'm not joining them in sin? Or will what I want to do make me more pure or less pure? Would what I want to do make God smile? Is what I want to do in keeping with the clearly given commands of God in Scripture? Christians, we're not legalistic. We will not at this church be legalistic. And that means we don't think we earn our way to God on good behavior. We don't think we get to God by obeying the commands. But we at this church also will not be antinomian, anti-law. We know God has revealed for us his ways and his standards and his word. He calls us to be holy because he is holy. So may we help each other to live holy lives to the glory of God. And Peter wants to give us one more thing that should motivate us toward holy living. If you can do one more point with me. Point number three, rightly fear God. Rightly fear God. And this is verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In verse 14, Peter called us behave as obedient children. 
Now he's going to continue in that theme by pointing to something that has to be true of us since we call God our Father. If God is your Father, you are to live in a proper, holy, reverent fear of God. Let's look at it pretty quickly. Let's see what it means. Let's see why we should be motivated to obey this, okay? Verse 17, Peter assumes that we already know God to be our Father if we're saved. That's not hard, is it? When you pray, you call God Father still? Most of you, I hope, right? Well, Peter reminds us that our Father is somebody pretty darn important. In fact, the God we serve is the God who will judge all people, and he will do so impartially. Is that good news or bad news? Depends, doesn't it? It means God judges us all according to God's standard of justice. He's impartial. The rich don't get a free pass. The poor don't get an extra break. There is no faster way to God if your skin is lighter or if it's darker, if your hair is straight or if it's curly, if your hair is dark or if it's gray. If you speak Hebrew or Arabic or Chinese or English, God is going to judge us all according to his holy, perfect justice. Do you like that idea? How do you feel about God judging you impartially according to your deeds? Be careful, right? It is good to know that we don't get advantages or disadvantages going into the judgment. It is terrifying to think that we would be judged by our deeds. Why? No human being other than Jesus Christ has ever lived a perfectly holy life. So if you are judged according to your deeds, if that's all God judges you by, if that's all that God judges me by, we are damned. God will send us all to hell and he will do it justly because none of us have lived up to his perfection. All of us have sinned and fallen short Of the glory of God. Keep that thought in your mind. We'll come back and and deal with it in a minute, okay? Look at what Peter says next. The command Peter gives us is if we call God Father, the God who perfectly judges, then we should conduct ourselves with fear during the days of our life on this earth. We are exiles, we don't belong in this fallen world, and our conduct and our way of life should show that we properly fear God. Now we have to stop and ask, what does it mean to fear God? Well, the word for fear can mean terror. I mean, it can mean terror in the way that you fear heights or spiders or snakes, politicians. (laughs) But the word here more likely means reverent, respectful. Let me illustrate. Parents, any parents ever take their children to the ocean? Yes? Is that not the most terrifying thing to do? You know, as parents, if you've ever done this, that you want from your children a proper fear of the sea, don't you? Now, again, you're not saying you want them afraid of water. We're not saying we want them to to be terrified of waves. But what we're saying is we want them to fear the power of the sea enough not to be foolish. 
They need to know that a strong wave or a rip current can, can end their lives. By the way, how many parents have taken a kid to the ocean have ever had that argument? You don't understand, Josiah. <laughs> Just think that through. Kids have to know they're not stronger than the ocean. They've got to know. Yeah, you can love the ocean. You can play in the ocean. You can rejoice in the ocean. But you need enough fear of the ocean so that you behave properly in the ocean. Does that make sense to y'all? We're supposed to fear God. And that doesn't mean that God says, I want you to want to avoid me. I want you to, to hide from me. That's not what God's saying. God is saying that he wants us to see him as holy and powerful and awesome. C.S. Lewis said this of Aslan the lion in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's not safe, but he's good. Lewis writes this. This is such a great quote from those books. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Why would we want to carry ourselves through this life with a holy, reverent fear of God? Peter says we do this in verse 18 because of how God saved us. Remember, if God judges us according to our deeds alone, we go to hell, and rightly so. But God, he says, ransomed a people for himself. God paid a price to rescue us. God spent his own resources to buy us out of the destruction we deserve. And Peter says we were ransomed from the feudal ways of inherited from our forefathers. All the people who lived before us without knowing God lived in futile ways. They thought they could be made right by being good. Do you ever know anybody that thinks they're going to go to heaven if their good deeds outweigh their bad? Do you ever know anybody that thinks they can, they can please the spirits of nature or, or animals or trees or paint with all the colors of the wind? <laughs> some, some people sacrifice to false gods. Some people try to convince themselves that there are no gods and no spiritual forces out there to be worried about. Peter just says, those are futile. Those are empty ways. Those lead to death. God ransomed a people out of that stuff, though. And how did he do it? He did it by paying a tremendous price. He ransomed us. And I love the way this is written. Not with something cheap, like silver or gold. Do you get that? God bought you, and it's not with something cheap like gold. How many of you think gold is cheap? God ransomed you with something way more valuable than gold. Gold goes away. God spent the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus, to purchase a people for himself. The blood of Jesus, like the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb, is what bought us out of damnation and brought us to God so he could be our father. 
Verse 20 and 21 tie all these thoughts together with last week's message, by the way. Because in verses 10 through 12, Peter talks about the fact that the prophets of the Old Testament, they looked in the scriptures because they really wanted to understand what was God predicting through them about Jesus and the sufferings and the glories to come. And right here, a similar reference tells us God planned what Jesus would do before the world was ever created. God the Father foreknew the plan he had for the Son. God chose Jesus to do this task before ever God created a single thing. But the eternal plan of God is now revealed. It's manifest. It's made clear because Jesus has now come to earth and lived a life of perfection and died as a sacrifice and risen from the grave and ascended into heaven and promised he would come back. Now we know what the prophets were talking about. And the end of verse 20 all the way through 21 says God did all of this. Why? For our sake. Real believers in God know that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead. And we real believers in Jesus Christ know that our only hope for salvation, the only hope that we ever have to be called the people of God, it's not because we're good. It's because we have entrusted the entire fate of our souls to the care of Jesus. We've entrusted our entire eternity to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be and did what he said he would do, that his sacrifice on the cross really was enough, that his resurrection really did happen. That's our hope for eternal life forever. Now, here's the cool part though. That paragraph from verses 17 to 21, which could be a whole sermon about the gospel because it reminds us about the gospel. What's the point of the paragraph? What's the point of 17 to 21? The point is it's supposed to make you live with a right fear for God. Now tie it together. Why? Why would this make me live with reverent fear for God? God rescued us not with something cheap. He rescued us with the precious blood, the precious life of his very own son. So how dare we look at the precious price paid by Jesus and then live like the glory of Jesus is not important? How dare Dare we pretend that God doesn't matter? How dare we pretend that the ways of God and the words of God are not important? How dare we value money or fame or sexual freedom or physical comfort above the glory of Jesus? How dare we? Remember the price that Jesus paid for you and let that make you rightly Fear God. Christians, set your hope on the return of Christ. Our lives are not for this world, but for something magnificent to come. Battle worldly passions with holiness. Because God is perfect, our lives are supposed to look like they belong to Him. Rightly fear God. Show by your reverence for God that God really matters and that the blood of Jesus is worth more than the cheap pleasures this world would use to drive you from God. And if you're not yet a child of God in Jesus Christ, know this. God will judge impartially according to your deeds. If God judges you based on your deeds alone or what you have done, you're lost forever. And that would have happened to me too. 
But if you want to be under the grace of God, you've got to believe in Jesus, you've got to surrender the authority of your life to Jesus, and you've got to ask Jesus to give you mercy. And if you do, you'll be saved. And if you do, you'll find joy and hope of living because you live in the light of the return of Jesus. You live in holiness because God is holy. And you live in proper fear of the God who is not safe, but he's very, very good. Let's bow and pray.